Winston Churchill and Lady Astor uh, in England had a mutual dislike for one another. They were known to have very, uh, a lot of verbal sparring between the two of them. One time she said to him, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. And he said to her, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. So, the, tongue, the tongue is very small, but it can do a lot of harm, as we'll see in the rest of our chapter today. As always, I want to say I'm grateful for the notes and books and resources available from my husband and his library that helped me put this together. So we've seen a great deal of wonderful theology in our study thus far of this book of Ephesians. How amazing are the truths revealing the mercy of God, the power of God to bring about a change of regeneration in people's hearts who are spiritually dead. The reality is that every believer has a new nature and that makes it possible for us to think differently and that results in a change of our behavior. Every believer is called to live a life that reflects the truth that we are now a new creation in Christ. Paul has gone to great lengths to explain the fact that we are chosen in Christ, that we're part of his body, that we've been made, made alive by the powerful act, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that raises spiritually dead people and brings them to life by regeneration. <clears throat> because of this work of God, Jews and Gentiles alike are one family, the church. In chapter 4, Paul tells us how this new life demands that we have a new way of living. And we're commanded to walk worthy of that call of how we're to live. And this is to be uh, unity in the church, spiritual maturity in every believer. We're to grow up and speak the truth in love. As Paul continues this chapter, he explains to us what it looks like to walk worthy of our calling, which we started last week that there's unity among believers, that there's purity and holiness in the way we think and the way we behave. We live in a spiritually dark world and we battle against this world's influence, our own flesh, and our enemy Satan. And even though we struggle with the battle of sin, a changed life that's in transformation is a testimony to the power of the gospel that transforms people's lives. Our verses for today demand that we have a new walk radically different than the way we used to behave. So let's look at some of our new life in Christ. The first one we see as we look at verse 17, Paul begins by saying, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. Paul begins by clarifying that the words he's speaking are affirmed by God Almighty. Believers are not to behave like they used to behave before they came to faith in Christ for salvation. In a world of absolute moral filth, there is that constant pull to fall back into our old habitual sinful patterns from before salvation. For the Ephesians believer, it was especially difficult because their entire culture was centered on the worship of the temple of Diana. And she was the goddess of fertility, so that validated every type of sexual perversion as it was promoted in the worship in the temple there. Yet in that pagan setting, God called out a people for his name, and a local church was established as a beacon of light. This was a culture in which believers were to live out a renewed life, renewed mind, holy living, surrounded by moral filth and corruption all around them as a way of life. They were to be different as how they acted with their friends, with their neighbors, with their family, uh, so that God would be honored. So this requires believers to think radically different from the culture around them. 
in America, we don't have the Temple of Diana at the center of our culture, but I'd say we have the God of self-love. Self-love, oh yes, that reigns supreme. With no thought about what that harm might bring to other people, we find ourselves living in a world of warped thinking, uh, has no comprehension of God's holy standards, and that's thought to be odd and even bigoted. So, our life and our past walk, Paul describes how do unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, had given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I thought, what a picture of our culture with greediness, because this is all about for me. This is a description of every person before salvation. Futility of mind speaks of useless and aimless and pointless thinking. It's futile because it leads to nowhere. Uh, people may have an incredibly high IQ and multiple higher education degrees, but nonetheless, pursuit of finding meaning and purpose in, a, in life is sought through things that will never satisfy. Whether it's fame, wealth, education, career success, sports success, um, substance abuse, sex, none of these things ever satisfies the soul or gives answers to life's greatest questions. They have no direction in their thoughts. We only have to look at Solomon's writing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vain. Despite all the technology and advancements in science, people still fill their minds with empty things that lack purpose. As one author put it so well, the life of an unbeliever is bound up in thinking and acting in the arena of ultimate trivia. He consumes himself in the pursuit of goals that are purely selfish, in the accumulating of that which is temporary, <clears throat> and in looking for satisfaction in that which is intrinsically deceptive and disappointing. Man is darkened in their understanding, spiritually blind, incapable of seeing the light of the truth of God. And this is the case because he rejects the light around him, as Romans 1, 18 through 20 talks about. He's also excluded from the life of uh, God because of the ignorance and hardness of his heart. There is a determination to remain in sin, which leads to rejection of the truth about God, which leads to darkness, which leads to alienation from God. That produces a life of self-centeredness without aim and without purpose. The result is seen in verse 19 where they develop a callousness to moral and spiritual standards. They don't care what they do. There's no sense of shame anymore. <clears throat> they indulge in all kinds of indecent acts of sexual immorality and every kind of impurity in greediness. Nothing's motivated by love for others. Rather, it's motivated by love for self and personal satisfaction. When I'm at the gym and I hear different music being piped through the speakers and I catch some of the words of the songs, they're mostly about sex and nothing about a loving attitude about the other person. It's what you're going to do for me, you know, and I'm moving on. And that is the world we live in. <clears throat> but it's never satisfied. It leads to more and more greedy, sinful behavior. And this is how we all once walked. Even though we may have exercised more self-restraint than others, this is the past of every person. But as a believer, we are different now. We've put on a new way of living. We've laid aside the old self. We put on the new self. Most of us get a certain joy out of getting rid of old worn-out clothes and replacing them with something nice and current and new. Um, and that's the picture presented of how we live our spiritual life. 
So, our new life in Christ. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, these verses may appear uh, to be a command, and certainly there are things that we are continually working at. But to lay aside the old self and put on the new self, that transpired at the moment of your salvation. According to Colossians 3, 9, and 10, Paul says that this exchange happened. Paul is telling us that we have exchanged our old set of clothes, our old man, for a new set of clothes, the moment of our salvation. And our old self is all that we were in Adam, and our new self is all that we are in Christ. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Paul goes on to say that believers are different. We're no longer living in darkness and ignorance of the truth because we have learned Christ, which means we have a personal relationship. Now we know him. We have now learned a totally new way of um, doing life, completely different than the old way. At the moment of salvation, we turned from our sins. We repented of our sins trusted Christ to be the Lord of our life. And in learning Christ, we have been called to standards and values completely different than the things we used to love and the things we used to follow. Every believer comes to that place where they hear Jesus through the voice of his word as someone shares with them the truth of Scripture about Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. The gospel message is not <clears throat> just that we would believe in Jesus, but that we are transformed so that we walk in a manner worthy of him, following his message to take up our cross, come after him, and die to self every day. And, have been, and having been taught in him, just as truth is, is in Jesus, the moment of our salvation, we enter into that union with Christ we saw in chapter 2. He is our teacher, he's our subject, he's our school. And we learn him. In coming to Christ by faith, we laid aside our old self and put on the new. And that's why it's such a great transformation that has taken place. That's why you were created. Remember 2.10 of this book that we were created? We are a, a masterpiece of art being worked as God is creating us for the good works he prepared us to do a long time ago. Paul is making the point that the truth you learned, the truth you heard, the truth you were taught about salvation involves a change in how we live. In the next verses, Paul tells us uh, what he told them, these Ephesians, when he explained the gospel to, him, to them. The old self, dominated by sin, is corrupted and in the process of decaying and rotting. It's deceived by sinful lust. And that's what we've put off. Repentance is turning from the darkness to the light, from the dominion of Satan to the realm of God. If a person claims to have prayed a prayer that they have trusted Christ as their Savior, but continue to live as they used to live before they prayed that prayer, with no change in behavior, then the old self has never been laid aside because there's never been a genuine turning from sin. To put off the old clothes means that sin no longer dominates you like it did before. As Romans 6 and 7 describes, we still struggle with sin, but now we have a choice. We can obey. So how do you live in light of the reality that your old self has been crucified with Christ. I remind you of the verse and that you've been renewed in the spirit of your mind. We're told here that that is something that must take place 
continually, moment by moment throughout the day. The way we keep from walking like unbelievers or like our old past is to have our minds renewed, to view ourselves as who we really are, that our old self has been laid aside. This is only possible because we've been given a new nature by God and a renewed mind that came with that new nature. And God gives us that new nature at conversion. <clears throat> and because we've been given this new nature, we are new creations in Christ. We have the capacity to obey God. We have the capacity to walk a holy life. So do you live in light of this truth that you no longer have a sinful nature that is forcing you to sin? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer are slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 9. As believers, uh, you have a divine nature that gives you the power to say no to sin. And that doesn't mean you sit passively by and expect that you're just not going to sin today. Um, it's hard work. It's discipline. It's thinking about what's true. It's being in constant fellowship and repenting moment by moment for that attitude, that word. We have a new master. We are to submit to him and his word and fight the flesh and subdue our sin. And because of the fact that um, at our conversion, we've laid aside that old sin nature, was crucified with Christ, and we have a new nature, therefore you must now lay aside all conduct that belonged to that old life. And this doesn't happen automatically. Paul is now going to apply this teaching in very specific areas of the lives of each believer that we will make sure that what, the way we live and act is a reflection that we've put off the old and we are walking in a new life. So what are those evidences of a new self? Well, we put off falsehood. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first area Paul tells us where to make sure to put off from our old behavior is lying. Believers are to be characterized by telling the truth. I mean, deception was a way of life. Just like the father of all lies, Satan, that is how our world and culture operates. I mean, Satan's deceived people to believe lies about God, about scripture, about ethics, about values, morality. Children lie the moment they have the capacity to figure out that the lie will benefit them. They're usually quite wrong in that, but in their little minds, they're thinking, I won't get in trouble if I lie. Adults lie as a way of life because we live in a culture built on lies. The political world is built on lies. The advertisement world is built on lies. The entertainment world is built on lies. And as a believer in Christ, we have become people of truth. We live in the realm of truth. Yet Christians fall back into line, and that's why Paul's writing to believers in Ephesus, because obviously it was an issue. It certainly is not a continuous way of life for a true believer. Scripture makes it clear that liars will not be in heaven. Someone who is characterized by lying simply proved that they are still a child of the father of all lies. True believers put off lying, yet you know, you've all done it, I've done it, we still blow it and lie. Deceit comes through the variety of ways, I mean, there's the obvious a flat-out lie. But lying is also more subtle. We do this when we withhold just enough information so that we know something will be perceived that's not how it really is, but we're just leading it by what we're not saying. We lie um, when we exaggerate, when we embellish stories, when we cheat on income taxes or tests. 
We lie when we fail to keep our word. You make a promise to somebody, you don't keep it, you're lying. Uh, you lie when you said you'd keep a confidence and you didn't, you told somebody. You lie when you tell your child you, that you'll do this or that with them and you don't do it. You're, you're lying. We also lie when we flatter people and say compliments when you know very well you don't mean a word of it, right? And we lie when, we're, when we do that, we're like-minded with the devil. There's no place for lying in our life. Instead, we are to be people who speak the truth. Now, speaking the truth is not a license to give rude but truthful comments to people and express my mind by speaking the truth. Now, as believers, we are members of one another in the body of Christ. Therefore, if we lie to each other, we destroy trust and fellowship is broken. And when we speak the truth freely and openly, that really paves the way to help bear each other's burdens. Does truth characterize you? Christ demands that we speak truth. We are to be characterized by people of integrity. Another Paul area, uh, area that Paul talks about is that we are to put aside anger. We are to have righteous anger. He says, be angry, but yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. So Paul is telling us that there is an anger we're supposed to have. It's a righteous anger over things that are evil, unjust, blasphemous against the Lord and his word. The new man should be angry at things that dishonor the Lord, the murder of unborn babies, the mockery of Jesus in the entertainment industry. Jesus himself had this kind of anger in, hum in his humanity as he dealt with the hypocrisy uh, that he dealt with people and the robbery going on in the temple. As I said, injustice, blasphemy, all these things, we have to be careful we don't become callous to and dulled to that because we've just heard it and seen it and it doesn't bother us anymore. It ought to make us angry. We ought to have a righteous anger, but not let the sun go down even on that anger. There's a sinful anger that most of us are more familiar with um, and that we ought to put out of our lives. Anger is the result of our own selfishness. We, use, uh, we used to be characterized by anger as a way of life because anyone who causes disruption to our plan makes us angry. Anyone who hurt our feelings or violated our perceived rights uh, are reason for anger. And we are so easily sucked back into anger that even when we have righteous anger, we have to be careful that we don't let it linger because then it even turns into personal resentment and malice toward people. I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard say how they hate individuals in the political realm. How can you hate people? We may hate the sin that their policies represent, but you cannot hate people who in the political arena not only do we struggle with this human tendency to anger, we have an enemy who loves to take advantage of this tendency to sin. And do not give the devil an opportunity. You open the door of your heart and your mind to the enemy when you allow anger and resentment to fester. He will feed your mind with thoughts of justification for your anger. To bring defeat to your spiritual life as you justify feelings of bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. Wounded pride causes sinful anger. Ladies, you know what? We need to stop thinking so much about ourselves. Really. And focus on how holy God is. Satan wants to take every opportunity to exploit you and turn you into someone who holds a personal grudge for selfish reasons. Then your prayers are unanswered. You live in a continual state of being out of fellowship with the Lord. 
and you bring harm to everybody in your life because that anger has a way of seeping out into every relationship you touch. I, I've seen this so many times and no clue that this is the continual state that people live in. Another subject, giving instead of stealing. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So apparently stealing was another struggle in Ephesus. A lot of the people, the majority were slaves. So you can understand the temptation there. Selfishness is at the heart of stealing because, and it is the mark of an unbeliever, it's a complete lack of respect for others and their property. It's often a mindset of I'm entitled to have this because after all my boss doesn't pay me very well, so this is how I'm making up for his insensitivity. <clears throat> or just thinking, not working hard, so you're really stealing in that sense from the Lord by not working hard, being a poor user of your time. It happens when we lie to the IRS, uh, falsify insurance claims, borrow money and don't pay it back, uh, pocket the change that a clerk made in a mistake at a transaction. These are all forms of stealing. Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is addressing the believers still struggling with this past of lifestyle of stealing. Behind theft is the mindset that I want something or nothing. And it's all about what benefits me. The solution for stealing is not just to stop stealing, but work hard till you're weary and exhausted so that you earn money so that you can give to people who have a need. We're to work. The idea of this verse is to wear weary and fatigued. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 tells us we are not to give food or money to someone who is capable of working but refuses to work. Those who don't provide for their families because they refuse to work, God says they have denied the faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 Not only are we to work hard, but we are to work that is a good quality of work. And Paul teaches us that our motivation for work as a believer is that we're doing our work for the Lord, first of all, <clears throat> and that we're to do that hard work so that we can give to somebody else when we get paid. It is more blessed to give than receive. Receive. We are to be hard workers and earn enough money to share with others. So selfishness is what ha characterized our lives before coming to faith in Christ. And that is an ongoing battle. I mean, that, that's just an ongoing battle to, and a struggle. The new man has a new nature. He doesn't steal. He gives to others. So is this how you think about your income that you have coming into your house? Oh, good. So who can I give to next? Or is it just on what now can I get next for myself? We really need to focus on contentment. Next, and I've often said this, if this were the only verse in the Bible, it'd be a lifetime of mastering obedience to this verse. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. No unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. We're not to use any words that are rotten, that are corrupt in their influence on others. Obviously, vulgar speech is clear, but any words that are unkind that are harmful, words that are negative and tear people down. How easy it is to have rotten words impact, especially the people that we spend the most time with. Paul contrasts rotten words by telling us, but only such a word as is good for edification. This means words that build up, that are beneficial, that are helpful. We're not to use any words that are negative 
and hurtful to others. We need only to go to the book of James and look at the deadly use of the tongue. It's that tiny little part of our body, but able to do such profound damage. Words kill relationships. Words kill marriages. They kill relationships between parents and children and siblings and church members and neighbors and on and on it goes. I remind you, Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. The truth is that what comes out of our mouths is what's going on in our heart. So really, we need to just stop when the ugly stuff is spewing and say, that's a big red flag. My heart's messed up. (laughs) I need to get right with the Lord. As one author put it, what's in the well of the heart will come up through the bucket of the mouth. Believers have a new nature, and our speech is to reflect that new nature. Perhaps we need to be still long enough to reflect on our words that we choose, and not just our words, the tone. You can say something nice in a tone that's just ugly, so you know it's still a dig. We need to be still long enough to just ask the Lord to help us see what needs to change in how we speak. I mean, Proverbs 12, 18 puts it so well. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. You've all received those thrusts from somebody. You've all given those thrusts to somebody. We've all experienced rash words that cut us deeply. By contrast, our words are to edify people and give grace to those who hear. A soft answer turns away wrath. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Our words are to fit the occasion. They're to be suitable. One has to then be a good enough listener in order to have the right words to say that give grace, because if you're the only one doing the talking, you don't even know what the issue is of the grace that one needs to hear. We need to think about who we're speaking to and choose appropriate words, words that are to benefit people that we speak to. With words, we can help lift a burden, encourage the weary, minister grace, uplift them. And why should we do this? So that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is given to every believer as the seal and the proof that we belong to Jesus. He indwells us. He is the assurance that one day we'll be in a glorified body in heaven. That is our future. We're sealed. Done deal if we know Christ. And we are to glorify him in our body. So how can we go on bringing grief to the Holy One who indwells us by our unwholesome words? It not only hurts everybody we're afflicting with our words, but it grieves the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He continues to say, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So that's all the garbage that our vile speaking and our unforgiving spirit and all that, this is what it spews out, wrath, anger, clamor. But be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the thought behind this command to be kind means to become kind, cultivate being kind. You're not naturally kind. This is something you develop. It's by thinking about others. It's the opposite of being bitter. Bitter is focused on self, um, and a kind person is focused on others and how I can do something for them, to be kind to them today. 
There's no limit of thinking of creative ways to bring relief and kindness to people who are bearing burdens. So take an interest in someone. Show kindness by meeting a need, giving a call, sending a text, providing a meal, giving a check, listening. Be creative. The Lord has given each of us gifts, and in those gifts we can exercise kindness. Tender-hearted speaks of compassion and being sympathetic and understanding. Jesus was so tender-hearted. I'm excited we're going to study the Gospel of Mark next uh, semester. But when we look at his life and his ministry, as he dealt with people with leprosy and all different people, it's just compassion. That's how he ministered. Forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. The new man is to act in grace, meaning we are to forgive those who have wronged us. And people legitimately wrong you. They do evil things to you. Someone may explode in anger to you, slander you, hurt you by actions. And we are to act in grace and not hold that sin against them. Why? Because it is the very nature of our Heavenly Father to forgive. And we're to act like Him. God has forgiven us in Christ for all our sins. Ladies, no matter what someone might do against you or me, it can never, ever come close to comparing how much you and I have sinned against a perfectly holy God, and he forgives us. This is not about how you feel about somebody, but rather it is an act of your will where you decide, I will forgive, I will no longer hold this sin against that person, I will forgive them just as I have been forgiven by Christ. And I'm not going to keep bringing it up. I'm not going to rehearse it in my mind. I'm not going to play it back over and over and over. So how are you going to apply these truths today, ladies? It's a lot. <laughs> have you let old sinful habits slip back into your daily life? What are you doing to renew your mind so you think right thoughts about it? Does the speaking the truth characterize you? Do you keep your word? Has anger become a habitual response? If there was a camera in your home on any given day, unbeknownst to you, and we came to church in this group and had it up on the screen, what would you think? Yeah. I, but I'm saying Holy Spirit is living in your home if you know Christ. He's in you, the Father in heaven, the angels watching. We looked at that in our studies. They're observing. Come on. Live in light of the truth. It's a high calling. It's tough. Are you cultivating kindness as a way of life? And do you forgive those who hurt you? Don't be imprisoned by a bitter, angry spirit, ladies. Don't ruin your life and everybody else's around you because of it. If you're a believer, then make sure you walk worthy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've made us capable to obey it when we come to you by faith, that we're not out here on our own trying to do a stiff upper lip and be good. No, we have your spirit who empowers us. I pray that we would think differently, that we wouldn't let our minds be filled with garbage, that we wouldn't take in trash, that we would fill our minds with truth and music of truth and thoughts that keep directing us back to obedience. Lord, I pray for each lady here to have lives that reflect their new clothes. 
I pray that we would honor you today. In your name, amen.